welcome back to what is now episode three of the Prince's Podcast. I'm here with our resident political scientist, Lewis Miller. Hello. Hello. And when we say resident, we mean resident because we're literally in his bedroom. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis, tell us a little bit about chapter three of the Prince. Give us a little quick introduction. Uh, this is called Of Mixed Principalities. Really, this is the chapter concerns how to hold a state you just conquered. So the previous one is about a state you've inherited, but this time we haven't inherited it, we've conquered it. This is, you've invaded a place, you're taking it over, you want to keep control and order. Maybe you've acquired a company, you know? Maybe you've moved into a new area. You need to lock that shit down, and we're here to help you do it. Now, I want to make clear to people... just made it explicit again. I'm being explicit again. Yeah. We've got an explicit listing on iTunes now, which um, oh, yeah. sort of undermines us as an educational podcast, but... That makes us hip with the kids, doesn't it? I think Machiavelli would swear. Do you think Machiavelli would swear? I don't know. Okay. I'm, I'm going to assume that he would. Yeah, um, why not? So, okay, so before you get started, Lewis, I want to again stress that if you haven't listened to episodes one and two... Don't worry about it. Why shouldn't they worry about it, Lewis? Well, they should, because I'll come and find them. And he's then... not going to come and find you. <laughs> you shouldn't worry about it, because it is not a narrative book. Each chapter is advice for princes. They do not go in any kind of order. There's no real... There's not much of a structure to it. There's good advice in every chapter. It's disparate. You don't need yeah, to listen to episodes one and two. It links in better if you listen to it all. You get it's more better of it, if you listen to it all, you, but you don't, you don't you, have to listen to yeah. it all, do you? Yeah, if you like certain aspects and those particular ones that you want to talk about, you can go to them. Yeah. But, of course, I would recommend that you go, you hit all these in order because not only is there an Yes, we formally recommend that you do listen to every single podcast we make. But Mm. if you haven't, don't worry about it. And you should know that I'm going to make this little announcement slash disclaimer at the start of every podcast in case there are any new listeners. What if there's a new listener? Imagine that. We have yeah. to be prepared in case such a thing happens. Prepare yourselves. Okay, so Lewis has again written a great little summary of notes about the third chapter of The Prince. Yeah, so um, so I've changed the chapter around a little bit to give it a bit more order. And we have tea and cakes as well, so if you hear yeah. a sound like this, um, that's just us drinking tea. Yeah. Don't let it distract you. So, um, so yeah, but like um, this chapter is... It's organised in a sensible manner, but I've just kind of jiggled it around to make it a little bit easier for everyone. So um, so he starts, really he's talking about, you know, how how you hold a new place you've conquered. Um, and early on you have to remember that the locals are the ones who welcome your rule, but this can be easily dismissed. And that really when he's thinking about who's going to overthrow you, it's not just the locals, because the locals will grab onto another regime. So it's also competing competing regimes. So, he starts with a quote. For men do easily part with their prince upon hopes of bettering their condition, and that hope provokes them to rebel. But most commonly they are mistaken, and experience tells them their condition is much worse. So that's already an interesting quote there's for an politics old, in general. There's an old Slovenian um, saying that Slavo Žižek likes to quote... And that's that the light at the end of the tunnel is the light of an oncoming train. It often feels um, quite... I often get reminded of that in politics. Yeah, it's already... We're only a few paragraphs in, if not one paragraph in, desperation reeks. This is why it's great. Um, So the problem that Machiavelli tries to solve in this is uh, 
how to see off potential threats to your new role. You really have one chance at this. He even talks about someone who had to reconquer, and it's more difficult. So you've got one real chance to get this right. So it's um, important that in your first go that you're ruling effectively and legitimately. So what are the threats and how can they be avoided? I've uh, put these into four threats for you. So the first one is your administration, which is you, basically. Uh, so people don't want laws and cultures undermined, right? You don't want someone coming in and telling you what to do. And they'd rather also that you didn't add more taxes since the last guy they kicked out either was oppressive or taxing them quite a lot. So if your rule is uh, more burdensome, they may look to other more liberal users. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, can I ask you a question about that? Because what we like to do in this podcast is use contemporary examples to examine these principles. And we, we, we decided before we recorded this that we were going to try and talk about Afghanistan, a very difficult uh, case study uh, in relation to this chapter. Now, um, as, as, as you would gather from reading this, it is ill-advised to march into a country and try and change the rules and culture. However, to many in the West, um, it was um, expected that the NATO mission in Afghanistan would not only nation-build, but would also try and impose um, more liberal values on the country, especially for women. So it's, it's hard to imagine Machiavelli being able to sell that line in um, 2002, Kabul, as it were. Well, yeah, um, and there's one interesting thing which you've got to keep in mind throughout this, in that he's writing this before human rights were even an idea, really. Yeah, yes, but if we uh, imagine... Because a lot of these liberal ideas we accept as human rights now, and um, so we'll get on to colonialisation. Of course, of course, now, but if we say mixed principalities, I think when we talk about us acquiring or... Um, taking over or occupying Afghanistan. What we really mean by that is we want to make Afghanistan m more reminiscent of our own culture. That was always an idea that there was going to be democracy and there were going to be more human rights. So forgetting human rights aside, that was very precious to us. So well, yeah, it's partly... He does partly say that um, that when you invade somewhere... This is important to this first threat that uh, of people dropping their current kings, that it's easier to hold somewhere that was heavily oppressed than somewhere that was kind of liberal. When mm. You can see that in early Saddam era. In fact, Iraq is probably a really useful example of how not to do things. Um, in the, you, we all remember, assuming you're old enough, oh, the guy goes at the Saddam sledgehammer with the, the Saddam statue with the sledgehammer and then they tear it down. And then within a number of months, because the systems aren't working, these people aren't getting what they initially thought, you know, they got unhappy and uh, were looking to other potential rulers of Iraq. So, to be honest, Iraq's a great example. Afghanistan, to an extent, because remember, it was a state of civil war since 1979, uh, when the Soviets had invaded, and uh, the Soviets failed, and you had a regime of Taliban, and it was still at civil war. And then we invaded, so uh, Afghanistan was complete chaos for a long time. Um, but Iraq was chaos to some extent. Well, there was instability, but you had a stable regime, which is then cast out, and then the people turn against you. So it's a, I'd say Iraq's a much better example. But My personal instinct was to say that Afghanistan was always going to be a disaster, but there, the, we, we could have got Iraq right, in my opinion, because the difference between Iraq and Afghanistan was that Iraq did have a suburban middle class and we could have bribed them instead of completely undermining them 
but anyway, we should. Well, that's we should... A, it's, it's fairly normal to do this. So we've got the two solutions to this first administrative problem of you messing up through imposing too much. The first one is respect their local customs, impose no new laws and taxes. Your rule will seem more benevolent than those who came before you, and it's made easier if they're not used to liberty, as we just said. The second one is uh, is quite um, you wouldn't get away with that today, or you might struggle with it, which is to plant colonies. Because ch- colonies are cheaper than armies, so if you simply put colonists there, you know, you don't have to pay them or anything, they just acquire themselves. And particularly poor ones, because, uh, you know, they don't have anything to rebel with. So it's a cheap solution to keeping order. They're also weak, unlikely to rebel, and require the protection of the prince, so they need you, and so they're going to be nice and loyal. And so, um, It's interesting, because it would be very difficult to persuade anybody to go and colonise... Kabul or Helmand. How, how, how has that historically happened in the past? How have we persuaded people to go and colonise these frontier places? Well, um, we tend not to do that today because it's normally seen as abhorrent. Um, but um, some people have done this. Uh, so if you look at Cyprus, northern Cyprus was invaded and taken by... Cyprus was invaded by the Turks and then lots of Turkish people moved there. And after a couple of generations, they have this almost legitimate claim to, well, I've lived here for two generations, I'm born here. Mm. So it's, it's very, very difficult to get a solution then. But this is a, I mean, it, it, we now accept this as being totally wrong, doing this for political purposes. But uh, if you look back to like traditional, how uh, states work, well, not states, but cultures worked in early Europe, you know, it was settlement and uh, expanding and settling new areas. Pretty much every culture in Europe is uh, from some sort of migratory period. I don't know if there's any genuine, maybe, not even the Basque, maybe, because the Basque probably came from somewhere and settled in the Basque region. Uh, So pretty much every culture in Europe is from somewhere else. So settling was part of human history, but now we try not to use that for political purposes because it causes absolutely chaos. So whether this actually is a way of creating stability nowadays, uh, I don't actually know if Machiavelli is completely correct. But um, let's um, rattle through these. Um, the second one is your own armies. So your own armies have to be stationed in this town, and that allows them to misbehave and put stress on the local people. And you have all these people with guns walking around, or before guns, any sort of weaponry. So um, yeah, you don't want that. So how does he say you should solve this? Well, one way of doing this is to live there yourself, which has two advantages. Firstly, you're close to where the plots are, and you can nip them in the bud early. As he says, for dangers that are seen afar off are easily prevented, but protracting till they're at hand, the remedies grow unreasonable and the malady incurable. An important lesson for modern-day politicians who still haven't learned this one. The longer you leave it, the worse it gets, put it simply. And this even relates to war for him. He says, when you leave a military engagement, you simply give the advantage to the enemy. Hmm. Uh, and he uses the example of the Romans. The Romans never swallowed any injury to put off a war, for they knew that war was not avoided, but deferred. Which, now uh, he goes on, commonly with advantage to the enemy. Okay, so this is an opportunity for me to sell the Princess podcast as not something that is just exclusively for Princess. I've become aware recently that not all of our subscribers are hugely powerful people. So... I thought in this instance I would just discuss a corporate example. I had a friend who worked for a small company or a small branch of a uh, larger company and the director was stationed 
hundreds of miles away in another city. Um, and recently, after about a year of this company existing, the director came back to this project. And he came in and he sat everyone around and told them exactly what they were doing wrong and micromanaged absolutely everything. And this was somebody they had never really talked to in the last year at all. And he just came back in, micromanaged everything that was going on in the company, told them what they were doing wrong and what they had to do. And it sent morale in the office through the floor because everybody was thinking, well, who are you to come back here and tell us what to do when you've been yeah, in this, another city all this time? This relates to the second advantage, actually, which is when you live there, you're more, your officers are more likely to behave themselves, basically, because they're close to the rulers and they're fearful of getting caught. But this doesn't need to even be that strong a sense. If you're near people and communicate with them and you have a day-to-day messaging, your preferences, you can easily show what your preferences are, right? Yeah. If you're across Europe or sitting in your palace and you're letting your offices, you can't really, even, well, it's particularly back in the 1600s, it's very difficult to get a message to them and say, here's how I expect you to act. If you don't, I'll kill you. It's very hard to manage it. So, yeah, you're even right in that regard. This is one of the Machiavellian messages from this book that completely transcends politics. I would say, basically, if there's something that you care about, that you're working on, a business, a political project, a child, be around, and it'll work, you know? It's simple. It's, um, yeah, I mean, you can't manage things without communicating, but communication is part of, you know, um, even making decisions and working together. It's a... in politics, we talk of cooperative action, um, where more than one person are involved. If you if they don't communicate, then you have all sorts of problems. That's a prisoner's dilemma, is partly about. So, um, so there's an interesting talking point. We can go back to Iraq, even. So he says, uh, after these two, a usurper is never so strong, and his army never so numerous, that he must have intelligence with the natives if he is to conquer a province. Which is, no matter how much strength or power you have. If you're not liked, you won't hold the province. And so that's quite an important talking point because basically in any invasion that's ever gone wrong, um, that's you can often look at that. So let's think of uh, Vietnam, for example. Now, uh, Vietnam, in Vietnam they had a problem with the leader um, who had to be, in, if I was to use um, the term of Machiavelli, extirpated, killed, because he was causing chaos with uh, the Buddhist monks and, you know, human rights problems and all. And so they killed him, And uh, but he was quite a popular nationalist, that was the problem. And so uh, they created a vacuum and it created all sorts of instability, and so anyone who's put there was no longer the choice of the Vietnamese people, so that helped undermine the regime. And, um, and yeah, it delegitimised the regime they were trying to support. And you have these this, uh, North Vietnamese force that say, you know, we're run by Vietnamese and we stand for you. Um, and yeah, so even if you had all the power of the US army, superpower, against what was quite a small country, if you had, if you are doing too much, if you had made yourself unpopular, you hadn't managed it properly, no amount of force could have won you that war. Um, and, you know, that's really, really important. I was thinking, just as you were saying that, that even um, somebody as disastrous as General Assad is popular enough with enough people to maintain to power maintain to that, continue. It's still chaos. Because, because he, he's protecting minorities in Syria. He, he's a Ba'athist and he's a secularist. And enough people feel protected by his rule of law that they'll fight and die for his horrible 
autocracy to continue. Yeah, um, even to go to something that was particularly more inspiring, if you look at the difference between the settlements after the First and Second World War, the Marshall Plan was a colossal plan to rebuild and not let any other rulers come into place, uh, come into Germany and extreme uh, forces to undermine it. And, you know, the Marshall Plan... There was instability in some countries, but I don't think uh, the economic instability was the big problem because unemployment had reduced by the 1960s to quite low levels. So the Marshall Plan was a great strategy. Whereas, if you look at uh, World War One, after World War One, you have what is a, a fragile regime, which is very unpopular, and it's not, and it's got hyperinflation, is very unstable, and yeah, and. So the people vote for someone else who is more popular to them at hand and able to, someone at hand who's more popular. And so this is very, very important. And this is a bit legitimacy, really. If you undermine your own legitimacy when you've walked in somewhere and someone else can offer a regime that suits those people's preferences better, then you'll normally be kicked out. Um, uh, there's an element here. Let's go to threat three. Previous rulers. As noticed in the previous chapter, established traditional rule makes your family more legitimate. So if you've been there for 10 generations, the legitimacy is cumulative, right? We were talking about that last time. And so if you've conquered somewhere and those people still exist, then your rule's challenged. They could always be restored. Um, so the simple solution is just to erase the family, uh, in his words, uh, just kill them all. And, um, and then that's that. Uh, it's important, this one. Because it's uh, very unchristian. Normally, they talk about clemency and forgiveness. Jesus is into his forgiveness, but uh, this one's just well, kill them, and it does solve the problem. In fact, you had a quote that you found in- interesting, yeah, didn't this you? This is one of the most terrifying quotes in the whole book, which um, I've kind of perceived as the um, the 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 modern um, justification for drone strikes. I guess by um, George Bush and uh, Barack Obama's drone program. We remember when um, the uh, the Islamic State executioner, who was horribly referred to as Jihadi John, was killed by a drone. David Cameron said it was in self-defence, and um, it's in that context that I um, um, where where are we? Um, I conclude likewise that those colonies, which are least interchangeable, are most faithful and inoffensive, and that few who are offended are too poor and dispersed to do any hurt. As I said before, and it is to be observed, men are either to be flattered and indulged or utterly destroyed, because for small offences they do usually revenge themselves, but for great ones they cannot. So the injury is to be done in such a manner as not to fear any revenge. An injury is to be done so as not to fear any revenge. Yep. Would you agree with that? No. Because um, I think if we've learned one thing from the drone program, it's that it recruits people for terrorist organisations. But um, this is a this is a deterrence point, though, and deterrence isn't doesn't need that. Well, drone striking is a quite an extreme one, but deterrence normally works on the the viewpoint that if you attack me, the re- retaliation will be so strong that you know you will be utterly destroyed, so you can't do it again. And that's and your wedding party. Sorry? And your wedding party. Yes, if you want to use that example. But um, you could even talk about NATO in these terms. Like, NATO, if you invade one of our member countries, we have most of the Western world behind us, and we will invade, and, you know, you'll cause World War Three. And so far, it has, touch wood, worked. Um, 
no NATO country has been invaded as far as I'm aware. Maybe there's been a small engagement, but uh, I'm not entirely sure of it. In that. the case of drone strikes, how, how could you possibly define that as successful? Um, I'm not defending drone strikes here, but I'm talking about what the principle here is. No, strategically. Well, one could argue there may, may or may not be fewer terrorists in the world. Well, I mean, in war, generally, part of the... War, you settle the problem through the use of force, right? Mm. Um, so, in what we try and do in modern democratic politics is we sit down in a table and we come to some sort of agreement we can all accept and we go home, right? But not everyone wants to function through that system. Some people want to use arms to get what they want. And so, um, in that case, normally, because they're a threat to people's security, you engage them with arms, right? You can try and negotiate them down, which some people think you should. Um, but what happens is that some people, we have to respond with arms and through force, for example, bombing people. And that's that's what war is. War is the use of force against someone who's other also using force. And, um, you know... In that sense, you could say that drones are a weapon which is being used as someone remotely sitting in the middle of nowhere and they're using it as a weapon. What some people have a problem with is the way that drones are used, that drones circumvene uh, normal international law and that drone strikes are used as sort of assassination techniques by robots in the sky. But the, the moral problem there isn't necessarily... Well, the moral problem there is the breaking of the law but um, the other moral problem is the assassination of people abroad. And um, I would ask you if you would want, if the world would be more stable if assassinations were ev never, ever pulled off. That's a very difficult question to answer. I, I don't think we're going to morally get to the bottom of this here and now. What I will tell you is that if I was chief prosecutor and Machiavelli was in the dock, that is the quote I would open with. But this, I, I want to defend this quote. But because I think it's a very, it's very bluntly put, uh, but it's very important. Which is when you act in a way, to um, to do something if you can, because he doesn't say if you can, but if you can, you act in such a strong manner that you're unlikely to get um, any uh, retaliation. And um, when you're thinking, I don't know, so. You don't want to protract conflict longer than you need to, right? You don't half half do things. You don't half argue something. You don't half, you know, if someone picks a fight with you and you're you have to push them away. You don't half push. You don't give them a little nudge. You push them away so you can get away. And that's uh, that's he's saying. You know, if you had, if someone takes, if you don't want to stop people from taking revenge, essentially. Yeah, like but deterrence. it's ridiculous. Isn't deterrence it? is this, this quote fail. This quote fails ethically and pragmatically, Lewis, because. So deterrence is morally wrong. It doesn't. It doesn't work ethically, and it doesn't work pragmatically. Why is deterrence morally wrong? Because if there was no deterrence, if your threat was never strong enough, the other person would be inclined to strike you again. You can be Kantian yeah. about okay, this. Okay, so and you here's say, the, the flaw oh, in this fault, quote: but... is that um, if you're going to screw with these people, do it to such an extent that you would not have to fear revenge. How is that ever possible? Just with the, the princes who are being killed in um, 16th century Italy here, you don't know who they know. 
You, you, don't, you don't know who they're connected to. You don't know who might take revenge on behalf of another dead prince. But that's a pragmatic point. That's not a moral point. It's and not, you are but so I'm telling that. you that it fails pragmatically as well. And if it fails pragmatically, it fails morally because it doesn't achieve its goal in the first place. That's that why when you, when, you, when, you, when you bomb a wedding party in uh, Kandahar... You and you, you for all you know, you inspire another generation of people who will never sympathise with well, yeah, Western values. And again, I'm not. I my position and, and is not this, to defend this, bombing. Yeah, I know, but if it fails pragmatically, how can it possibly succeed ethically? If it fails to well, quell the danger, I don't think Machiavelli is wanting you to bomb innocents. If anything, he wants you to avoid that. I know, but you're doing it so you don't have to fear revenge. That's what it says in the book. But he's he's saying you can that you never act ever in a manner you can, which stops revenge from happening. But it's impossible so if, to do that. You can never ever kill anybody. And be totally sure that there'll be there won't be any revenge. You can't do that. You don't know who well, they know. Well, I mean, you could argue one point, which is that dead people tend not to fight back, uh, but that's quite a strong one. And yeah, that's the way that do. quote is their sometimes interpreted. Their friends do, and if it doesn't but work, this is the this is the correct answer. As I was about to say, like this is the correct answer. That this point, it is quite vague, to be honest. If you want to interpret it like that, um, that. Yeah, well, there will always be someone to fight back. But, um, you know, wars are won sometimes, I suppose. Um, sometimes there is some sort of surrender that happens and an agreement can be made. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's the case that deterrence never, ever works. No. Um, but we're about to get to the... Actually, we're about to get to the most important one uh, before you make me defend anything else that I don't want to defend. Okay. Um, so the, uh, the fourth biggest threat which I think is what most of the chapter is about, is um, other princes. Okay, yeah. So if you delegitimize your regime, there will be other princes available to provide things, right? And you can think of lots of them. Like, uh, you know, uh, ISIS is some is the easiest to hand one that we have in Syria and northern Iraq, that people just let them r- roll in because the people might have been seen as incompetent. I don't have the knowledge to really claim that 100%, but other princes... And he says this um, in a strategic sense, right? He, and uh, I've translated this a little bit because the translation in the two copies I had to look at weren't great. But he says, Those who give others power at their own expense are ruined, as that power has been gained with skill or force. And those you have given that power to distrust you. Uh, they're distrusted. So, um, so he's got three case studies which we can rattle through. Uh, the first one's Venice and Louis XII, the second one's Romans, and the third one's Naples, but we'll swap them around. So he's quite harsh on the Venetians. He says, The Venetians began to consider and reflect upon their indiscretion, who to gain two towns in Lombardy, which is their objective, had made the French master of two-thirds of all Italy. So how did they do that? Well, he wanted to conquer a couple of towns in Lombardy, so they invited King Louis, as they had no other friends. And uh, Genoa submitted to them. The Florentines became friends with them and pretty much everyone else in Italy asked them for an alliance. And so in doing so, in inviting the French into this conflict, they had um, invited a foreign power which could overpower them and then changed the complete game from something that... They changed everything in such an uncalculable manner. France then made the same mistake in Naples, where um, well, they firstly empowered the Pope, and everyone didn't like the Pope, but nobody liked the Pope, Um Someone who other, yes, other rulers despised. In doing so, they empowered a threat to their own authority. They delegitimized themselves. And secondly, he gifted part of Naples to the Spanish. 
And that then once more invited another power in, which, as he said, you know, you don't give people uh, power at your own expense. So why is this stupid? Because every prince desires power, and you gifting them the ability to take it is gifting someone the ability to take power from you. He says, As soon as a foreign power enters into a province, those who are weaker or disobliged join themselves to that power out of a hatred to the rulers above them. So if you are hated, they are the next alternative. So you're giving them an alternative choice. Um, so this is quite, it's quite different from the simplistic one as well, because the modern state has command on the use of force, whereas he's talking about communities with local leaders who can change and power wasn't so centralised as it is now. You know, you don't have the prime minister who can put his finger on a button and send people out. Um, you have local leaders as well who pay fealty. And if, for example, in the feudal system, you've got uh, local leaders who pay feel, uh, who swear fealty to the next leader and the next, and you're at the top of this big hierarchy. So direct rule is quite hard. So when your direct rule is weak, these people can just pick someone else if you're crap, basically. So knowing this, how should you act? Who's the best example? The Romans. They invaded Greece as they knew that prolonging the conflict was to their disadvantage. They were invited by the Aetolians and the Achaeans. Despite inviting the Romans, the Romans never rewarded them in a manner which empowered them and threatened Roman authority. So um, I'd like to use the example of Libya, um, which is how do we solve it? And uh, who should we involve in it then? How do you solve a problem like Libya? How do you solve a problem like Libya? Hmm. That's extremely difficult. So Libya is, just now, if you don't know, there are two governments in Libya. There's one in the east and one in the west. One is uh, the formally elected uh, Islamist government, and the one in the east is a secular one that was elected more recently, but the other ones didn't consent to their rule. There's another power as well. And there's a third power in the middle of Libya, which is the Islamic State. And um, they're being allowed to have a foothold in the country. And uh, when they're the alternative present, uh, they, they're then able to, you know, entrench themselves deep. So, um, and yeah, and as he says, that if you leave things too long, they become unseasonable and the malady incurable. So um, should we intervene in Libya, Nicholas? I think by Machiavelli's own standards, Libya for this generation might already be incurable, incorrigible. Should we intervene again? I mean, it's not good. It's not going to happen. There's no political will to do it. Um, if we could do it, would we? Maybe if um, if Islamic if, if Islamic State suddenly become, I mean, we we don't really talk about the Islamic State in Libya much. They they seem to be so overshadowed by their um, Syrian and Iraqi counterparts, as it were. I, I, I yeah, it's it's really hard. I mean, um, I I I think for once it's one of those things where. We have this attitude, this post-Iraq, post-Afghanistan attitude in the West, that whatever we do will inevitably make things worse there. And um, I, I like to fight back against that point of view, but in this case, um, it's very seductive. Well, I um, I don't think I'll... I think I'll say what would Machiavelli do, or what can we draw from this? Yes. What yes. can we draw from it? Yes. Which not is not the... what would Nicholas do, what would Nicolo do? That's what yeah. people want to know. Well, your name is a translation. In fact, um, Ludovico is the leader of um, uh, Milan in this, and then you have King Louis, and I'm Louis, so we've all got translated names in this piece. Um, but yeah, I think what he is saying is he's, he would, with Libya, he, we should have, firstly, after the revolution, 
provided enough um, so that taxes didn't have to be raised for the reconstruction and so that there was a legitimate government there in the short term, which is that part was there. That um, We should have had enough control over it so that there was no threat, no alternative princes who could take control afterwards. So power should have been centralised. And um, and we sh- and it all should have been based on the legit- legitimacy of the government with the people. Marshall Plan is a great example of post-war planning because they had realised that punishing the people that you just conquered doesn't work. So, you know, making the system better than it was previously worked, that tends to make your re- regime legitimate. Um, and so that should have been done early on, but now it's too late. So what they're trying to do is get the two sides to agree to a new government together, but that's taking a very long time. Something has to be done with um, with ISIS in Libya, and something needs to be done soon. And the longer it's left, the more difficult it will get to solve it, because they are recruiting, they're building capacity, they're entrenching themselves. So if you were going to invade, if it was possible to invade, if it was possible to get the consent to fight back against, Lib- uh, against ISIS there... Now would be the time to do it, because later, in Machiavelli, as he says, the longer you leave it, you only give the advantage to your enemy. Which yes. is maybe a good point to end yeah. this uh, chapter on. Yeah, at, at the time of the Libya intervention in 2011, the, the, the policy conveyed by um, David Cameron seemed to be that we're going to take out uh, the government and all the infrastructure and we're going to let the ordinary people volunteer to fill in the gaps and that was the same time when David Cameron was um, peddling his big society idea and I hope our British listeners enjoy that observation. If I can put a little addendum on the end, which is that um, my opinions are often simply echoing what Machiavelli say, I'm often playing devil's advocate or Machiavelli's advocate, so I don't actually want to invade absolutely everywhere, just so you... Uh, so that's clear. Okay, so if you're listening, Lewis do, probably doesn't want to invade your country. Yeah, yeah but um, carry on hating, that's always fun. <laughs> carry on hating. <laughs> One of Kenneth Williams' lesser-known films. Yeah. Um, carry on listening, please. Um, yeah, that was... We appreciate everybody who's made it this far. We appreciate your stamina. We appreciate your patience. Well done. Yeah, thank you. And we will be back next week, right? Or in a few days, or whenever we feel like doing this. The yeah, good thing about podcasts is you make your own schedule... And you just say, should we record one tonight? Yeah, why not? Which is why everybody should be making podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should we play Call of Duty? Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Okay, bye everybody. Thank you for listening. See you.